Welcome back to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack, where the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. We are back after a week masquerading as your favorite television soundtrack aficionados. The Perfect Movie Soundtrack returns with an all-time great movie and a soundtrack that, well, they can't all be hits. Thelma. I've not told you I can't stand it when you holler in the morning. I'm sorry, doll. I just didn't want you to be late. Hey, how you doing, little housewife? Louise. Yeah, I still have to ask for dinner if I can go. You mean you haven't asked him yet? Selma, is he your husband or your father? Selma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? What are we doing? What we are doing is uh, celebrating Election Day. Of course, our listeners know that we don't record episodes the day that they come out at three o'clock in the morning, right? So, like, it is not mm-hmm. currently election day. Oh, we're for, pulling back the curtain here for, big time. <laughs> for us. But <laughs> wow. it soon will be. And if anyone is listening on uh, drop day for this episode, it is election day. So if you, you have should be in line. I was about right to say, now. if you have not yet voted, which I know voting isn't the only thing left to us, but we still have to go do it. Uh, if you haven't yet done that, I hope that you are standing in line and we are going to help keep you company Mm, or that you are going to, uh, put this fucking shit down and go to your polling place right this second and, and get the job done. Because part of the reason why, uh, I chose Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise is because I hope that this election day, Dr. Oz wins. (laughs) <laughs> oh, misread that. Totally misread that. Sorry. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just trying to scare people to shut this off and run to if you're in Pennsylvania, run to your election uh, booth right anyway, now. Anyway, uh, I chose Thelma and Louise uh, to drop on election day in great hopes that election day would resoundingly make clear. That the state has absolutely no fucking business fucking with women's bodies or with the bodies of anyone who does not want to be pregnant and happens to be pregnant, even though they do not. All right. Good. This land was made for you and me. So, here we go. Ridley Scott, 1991. It is a short-lived comeback for Mr. Scott. He has another dip in his career that comes after Thelma and Louise. But before we get to any slumps in Ridley Scott's career, let us let us put the man on the pedestal, at least momentarily. I, okay. I, I assume that the two of you agree with me that he belongs there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, sure. got, he's got some skills. Yep. That okay. Ridley. Yep. <laughs> okay, just checking. Just checking. Yep. I mean, on Alien and, Alien and Blade Runner alone, the guy can ride Alien and Blade fumes. Runner are actually all you need. That's right. In 1979, we have Alien. In 1982, we have Blade Runner. And really, like, the guy could have retired at that point. In 1984, he directs uh, the famous uh, commercial, Super Bowl commercial, announcing the Macintosh computer, which 
really clearly demonstrates to the world that he can also do like short form storytelling and he's got these commercial chops. He's really he's really like flying high. And then he makes Legend and mm. which you know, it has a cult following. I'm sure that yeah. there are people listening right now who are like Legend is baller yeah. and fuck yeah. all of you for saying anything but. I bet you every movie you can find a follow like even Black well, Rain sure, with Michael Douglas. I bet I you there's a following for one, yeah. I found that out when I was researching of uh, Judgment Night and if you go on like one of the like in any of the uh on YouTube where they should play, you know, looking at the videos or whatever, the comments are just like this is still my favorite all-time movie and you know, I just seen it so I was like, whoa, and not like one or too like lots of people there's a movie for everyone yeah so in 91 he comes roaring back from this like you know pretty pretty long slump he's he had like three four really powerhouse years and then seven kind of low ones and then we've got susan sarandon and gina davis as thelma and louise and on the very small off chance that you do not recall uh thelma and louise are headed on a girl's road trip to a cabin where they're going to spend a weekend together they take a side detour to a little honky-tonk where Gina Davis uh, encounters a guy who she dances with for the evening. And when they find themselves out in the parking lot, he attempts to rape her. And Susan Sarandon comes uh, and discovers them and uh, pulls a gun and uh, ends up shooting him. And he dies. And the rest of the movie is about what happens as a result and after that sort of big change in in the in the weekend plans can um, i can i throw something in um please. real quick yeah so th- when you when you summarize it that way which is an, a 100 percent accurate summary uh um i w- what occurs to me is how much it sounds like what you're talking about is a is like a social realism movie like the accused mm. and how mm-hmm. what you don't get from that description is how much fun this movie is yeah yeah Right. Like like that. That's a very accurate description. It is all that darkness happens. And yet this movie's a lot of fun because yeah. I would say this movie is a mashup of the Western and the road movie mm, and the buddy movie mm-hmm. and all of these genres that were so male dominated. Um, and, and they are kind of like inverted and flipped on their heads when women characters own these stories and you're absolutely right is it is a fun movie for sure but it's also a very serious movie and and it begins what what sets everything in motion for these two characters is this moment in the parking lot when susan sarandon pulls the gun um and 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 shoots the would-be rapist so like i said i wanted to look at it because i i wanted to think about angry women and what they can do you let her go, you fucking asshole, or I'm going to splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. All right. I kind of got the sense from uh, the group chat that you guys were maybe a little bit surprised when you watched the movie. Not that you were expecting to dislike it or anything, but I, am I right? Were you, were you a bit surprised? And, no, and if not so, at all. What, by what? <laughs> no, you weren't? No. Really? It's Thelma, it's Thelma and Louise. It's when, a classic. Yeah, but when had you seen it last? Uh, high school, maybe college. I love Susan Sarandon and I always think Gina Davis has a better filmography than she does. And then I look at it and I'm always disappointed and feel like there should be more hardcore Gina Davis movies. Cause she seems like she's such a movie star to me. And while she does embody the role, she still looks like a movie star the whole time. And it kind of feels, gives it this like old fashioned 
obviously they were probably thinking about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid. And I kept thinking of like Newman and Redford, how you believe they're Cowboys on the run, but they're also mm. completely movie stars at the same time. Yeah. And it's kind yeah. of the fun of watching right. a movie. Yeah. So I was just all in on it. Oh, I know what I was surprised by that. There is a scene one-on-one with two of the most 90s character actors of Stephen Tobolowski. I think that's how you say it. Yes, Ned from yes. What About Bob that, and Shooter that, McGavin. Wait, 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 wait. You'd recognize that dude as... Oh, wait. Oh, you're just getting the Bill Murray movie wrong. You're talking... Okay, you did me... It's not Ned. Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Ned what Ryerson. did I say? Needle, you said What About Bob. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Needle knows Ned yeah. Ryerson. From yeah, exactly. Groundhog and he's like, Day. Bob, yes. Ned, and then he punches him right in the face. Yes. So you have Ned... Also, SMU graduate. I just got to throw Ooh. that out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, SMU really? zone, along with Kathy Noted. Bates, since we talked about her recently. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I no. remember Kathy Bates. I'm keeping track yeah, that's of your our whole, That's it. I'm done. But he's, <laughs> that's the whole. <laughs> he's this like iconic jerk, char- great jerk character actor that shows up in 90s movies. And then he's across from another great jerk character actor, Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. And that guy just has a face where everyone wants to cast him like an asshole husband, uh, a jerk that you want to root against. That guy's name is McDonald. I forget his first name. I think Christopher, I think. Christopher. But these two are in it and then they play across from each other and they get their own scene. And I was just, it just made me really excited and happy. I don't know why. I was like, wow, I never knew you could put Shooter McGavin and Ned together and make it compelling. I have always heard people t- talk about Shooter McGavin. I didn't know who Shooter McGavin was. So when you texted that the other day, I was like, <laughs> why is he talking about this Shooter McGavin guy that like dudes always talk about? He's just but that's a, because a I wonderful I, comedy asshole I haven't villain. seen all those movies, but that guy is incredible in Thelma and Louise. Yeah. I laughed the whole he's, he's, movie. For yeah. anyone who's, who's thinking like, who the okay. fuck is Yeah, because I don't know who Shooter McGavin, McGavin is either, so. Um, we are talking about, uh, the actor who plays Gina Davis's absolute (laughs) piece of unbelievable shit. He's like up there with, um, William H. Macy's character who I can't think of his name. Lundegaard. Jerry Lundegaard. Jerry Lard. He's up there with Jerry Lundegaard for just straight up loser. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like embodies it. Everything about him. The way he gets her to put his <laughs> bracelet on before he goes to work. Yeah. And then later. When, his when number she, one pendant. He has yeah, a necklace number one just pendant. says number one. And when she, when she hasn't come home the next day and he's like, there's like a little moment where, where you realize that he hasn't been able to take his bracelet off and it's annoying him. And like, because he can't take it off because she has to put his bracelet on and take it mm-hmm. off. He's yeah. just, he, his performance is incredible. He's he great. is so funny the whole time. He's so stupid, such a loser, but it's just his physical comedy. And you hate he's him great. so much. It's so and fun to such, hate him too. Oh, it's so great. I <laughs> could not have loved a character more. I, I absolutely was like, this is a wonderful performance. He should have been nominated for an Oscar. I told you guys. Do you know he... that he was uh, Gina Davis's fiance? Oh, no, I did not. He was cast in the movie. <laughs> I yeah. did not. Really? Yeah, wow. they, uh, is he <laughs> handsome? He's, he's so he's good funny. in it that I, you know what? He is super handsome because I looked up his IMDb and I saw other actually. like yeah, when he's he not is. playing a dumbass, he's yeah. very handsome. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you no, become an were, actor because you're a good-looking person, and were, then you end up being the jerk. They were engaged and uh, and they had broken up, and she recommended him for the role. She was like, oh, that's cool. I think I know, and they, obviously they had like enough of a an amicable uh, split that yeah. that made sense. Yeah. Was this she was before right. Jeff he's, Goldblum? He's, he's incredible. He's incredible. You and know he what? Has, he has a I lot of screen time. I do not know Matt, but I'm going to say props after because I think oh, yeah, they, they, met, in I the think they met at the fly. Yeah, yeah you're right. Exactly. So it's after. 
Uh, but Joshua, did anything surprise you? How but how fun everything is. I mean, not that it's all fun because obviously it's serious and stuff too. But like, hey man, I'm here to see a movie. I I don't I don't seeing a rapist get shot. It's fun. <laughs> I mean, I hate to tell you, it's fun. Like you know, it's it's a cool movie, man. Like it's it's a blast. They are great. You like them a lot. You're with them for a long time before the shit hits the fan. Like that's pretty, I don't know how far into the movie, but it's, it's fairly far into the movie. So you've come to really like them. You like yeah. being on this trip with them already, even before you know where this trip's going to go. And then uh, when they're on the run, you know, I mean, it's, it's sad at times, it's intense at times, but it's also really joyful at times. And they both have such good, like, vaguely southern accents and that's such a that's the thing that hollywood fucks up all the time because hollywood tends to just think everybody sounds like they're from georgia and they have like the big vowels and stuff but like they kind of do that more subtle they're from arkansas and where my mom's people are from so i know that a little bit and i'm not saying they sound like billy bob thornton they don't sound like they're from arkansas necessarily but they've adopted these inoffensive vaguely southern accents that are good and that's not that's not something many actors are good at. That's interesting to hear because I was going to ask you guys about that because I looked it up and Susan Strandon's from Queens and I didn't know that Gina Davis is as like Yankee as Heather would says you can get. She's like Massachusetts <laughs> Vermont person, which I didn't yeah. know. And it seems so natural. And then Ridley Scott's British. <laughs> and then Hans Zimmer's German. <laughs> Actually, I looked up the screenwriter, the <laughs> woman funny. who wrote the great script. I know we'll talk about her later, but she's like from Kentucky, I think, or something. So that's, I think, where the voice comes from of, of the whole movie. But I was like, is someone here near Arkansas or, or on their way to Texas or Mexico? Because right. I was just, I was like, we're in Europe now at this point. I think we should like, t what is the, what do, you, what do you do with the cap and the hat? Tip, a, tip your cap. Yeah, yeah. Give a tip of the cap. cap. Yeah, that to uh, the dialect okay. coach on this yeah. movie. Yeah. I have a uh, feeling that the, okay. I have a feeling that the dialect coaching was uh, was really, really. Oh, effective. I thought you knew. Oh, you're just guessing. Yeah. I thought you were going to be like, no, no, no. And I, that I, dialect I, coach, is. our guest, ep our guest this episode. <laughs> and then they're like, hey, y'all. <laughs> have enough fucking country music on this show we make <laughs> i don't know that today's gonna change that all that much but I, I see what you're going for i think I mean, we I... had just enough <laughs> like three songs <laughs> i'm good <laughs> you're right joshua this is not the grand old opry of soundtracks but i in i have long had a quest to put a true great country music soundtrack on our show and i have come up short many 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 times it's actually really tough to it find it is it is i've looked as well and so uh i think this is one of the one of the closest ways we can come to that um without ending up listening to something stupid that is actually bad country <laughs> right this soundtrack is not one of those ones that's gone platinum in every fucking country. Certainly not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But I think it has a point of view. It definitely it has a point of view. I will, a, I will agree with that. It Absolutely. Has a distinct point of view. Matt, it I does. hear you. The point you of they just the, the point of view is they pointed on a map to the region and was like, let's put music that sounds like this on the radio that you pass as you're turning the channel. Did I get it right? Is that the, is that the point of view? 
That's well, not what I would say do, the point of we, view is, but but tell me because some... I wasn't hearing it. I'm open to it because I had to teach Heather a lot about when Harry met Sally <laughs> and the importance of jazz standards. That's true. You really did. And maybe um, this is falling on my ears the same way those old songs that like kind of just shuffle through. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, let's let's uh, let's let's tell everyone what's on the soundtrack, Great. right? Great. So. I think you're right, Matt, that there is kind of a like throwing of the dart at what sounds like the road, right? Mm-hmm. So so we ha- we have road music and we have road music that uh, is, is music you can imagine coming uh, is diegetic music that comes out of the radio. And it's music that just makes you feel like you could be on a road trip. So you've got Glenn Fry, you've got a cover of Van Morrison's Wild Night. And everything looks so Wild Night cover by uh, Martha Reeves of uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandells. That's that's the name of her group, right? And uh, mm-hmm. that's good. It's a, it's 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 a good cover. It's fun to listen to. It actually yeah. makes what I would normally say is kind of a shitty song new again. Like I I was thinking to myself listening to it the first time I listened to the soundtrack before I'd rewatched the movie. I was like, gosh, I don't remember this song being in the movie. I, I, I kind of hate Van Morrison. I, I don't love this song, but but it sounds great coming yeah, out of it this does. woman. I think Van Morrison's songs are good songs. I think he can be a little annoying. I mean, people love him. To me, he can be a little annoying, but like I am often reminded that his songs are good. If they catch me at the right moment, and this is definitely one of them, where it's like hearing this cover of it, you're like, oh, this is a good song. Yeah. Um, you've got a, a lesser known uh, musician named Charlie Sexton who has a couple of tracks on the soundtrack. Although he really should not be uh, as, as much of an unknown as he is. He's very, he- very known in Texas. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's he's kind of a he's probably a I don't know, did he I go to SMU? kind of celebrity. No, he did not. He's an Austin guy, <laughs> but he's a celebrity in Texas. I mean, he's he's pretty recognizable. Uh, okay, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad he has his people because he's worked with fucking Bowie and Lucinda Williams. I think he. I don't. I actually think he is not currently Bob Dylan's guitar player, but he was for like a decade or something. His touring guitar <sighs> player. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, we've got a couple of songs from him. Um. And then we've got the the um, stuff that mostly is on the Shadow soundtrack that's coming out of the radio as the girls are driving, the way you do the things that you do, I Can See Clearly Now, uh, and some B.B. King. And and then we get this sort of smattering of uh, female country that comes from Kelly Willis and uh, Tammy Wynette. That's Shadow soundtrack, the Tammy Wynette. Tammy Wynette is, sh- is Shadow soundtrack, yeah. Kelly Willis is not. Kelly Willis has a couple of songs.
listeners who uh, will know that in our last episode, when I was teeing up Thelma and Louise, I said that my friend Joe had told me that he's he's really moved by one of the songs in this movie, and he thinks about it all the time. What what he was referring to is the song from the ending. It is called Thunderbird, and it was composed for the soundtrack for the movie by one Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. Legend. Ooh. Legend. One of the things that we haven't really touched on in this movie is is what a and a capital H or quote-unquote Hollywood, however you want to signify Hollywood, what a Hollywood movie this is. I mean, it's oh, really yeah. fun, uh-huh. and it's really cool, and it's gritty, but it's a big Hollywood movie. And, it you know, sure evidence is. of that is the insanity of how many cops and helicopters are looking for these two women. It's yeah, incredible. A lot. It's like, what a is going lot. on? They have, they've got entire state police forces. Oh, they've like got the Blues entire Brothers FBI. Yeah. Yeah. But the way he shoots it is so great. The classic yeah. scene when it's just the desert, and you see the it's first hilarious. cop car it's and hilarious. the second. It's like, what are you talking about? Oh, this so is not how things, you know, this many people don't chase serial killers another (laughs) way we know it's a hollywood movie is how many mega stars were almost in it yeah that list is wild i saw that that. list is bonkers jodie foster meryl streep michelle pfeiffer uh george clooney who gina davis told wait george uh, clooney i only heard the michelle i'm glad he didn't do it he wasn't ready for it yet he was too young he wanted it so bad well who was he he gonna be who do you think he was going to be, Matt? Of course Thelma? he was going to be the Brad Pitt character. Oh, oh wow. Was wow. he what, Was he that young? I guess he Yeah, was, he was on he Roseanne was at the young. time. I always picture him yeah. as like a suave 40-something guy forever. Gina Davis was worried that George Clooney uh, would be... It would be hard to stay focused playing playing uh, in scenes. Because he's him. too good looking? Well, yeah, she kind of jokes with that... Brad Pitt? What are you talking about? Well... Uh, you're either a Brad Pitt girl or you're a George Clooney girl. Oh, okay. She's, she's more of a George, George Clooney, Clooney girl. girl. Gotcha. Okay. Sure. Oh, you gotcha. can't be that, okay, both. I would take yeah. both of those dudes on. No, you cannot be both. And so one of the other things about like how Hollywood this movie is, is the music. And I think this is true about a lot of the songs in the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is, it's, it, it is, it is okay. Country-esque. It's in the country realm, but it's mm-hmm. a type of music. It's country that was adjacent. Like, I like that. I like that. Country adjacent. And it's also like this spot. It's, you know what? It's country adjacent like Melissa Etheridge is country, country adjacent. Like, <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Keep the going, music keep is going. Kind, yeah. The music Melissa is kind of like that. Point. It's kind of like this like, yeah. like rocky Cheryl kind Crow. of. Yeah, Show Crow comes a year, a couple years later doing something like this. It's like that that like rocky kind of thing so it's like movie music like it sounds like like the real guitar-y sort of um emphatic thing that was happening in like uh 80s and early 90s especially late 80s and so Hans Zimmer is a perfect guy to be doing this soundtrack because he is one of the quintessential Hollywood composers like he's one of those people that if you see a movie there's you very likely are going to see his name pop up he's won two academy awards but he's done a ton of stuff that we that you all know the lion king 
Gladiator, all the Christopher Nolan stuff. He does all the so the Dark Driving Knight, Miss Inception. Daisy, I yes, he did Driving Miss Daisy, which won Best Picture, and the year before that, he did Rain Man, which won Best Picture. Those were like two of his first yeah. movies too. So like he's just been at the top this whole time. He's a very good driver. Yeah, he yeah he's done a lot of road movies. <laughs> the song that's in the Thelma and Louise at the end that is score. It's 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 more score than song. And it is it is more score than song. But it's on the soundtrack, so that's why we're talking about it. And it's unusual because we don't talk about scores much because these soundtracks we do tend to not mingle scores and soundtrack. They tend to be on two different soundtracks or two different albums. I mean, yep. This one, this song is on the soundtrack, so it's treated like a song, but it's actually score. Uh, one interesting one that I found out in my little research about him was that uh, when he made the th when he did the music for the Thin Red Line, this is so Terrence Malick that I had to share it. Terrence Malick wanted all of the music before he made the movie, which is the opposite <laughs> the opposite of how this ever works. So he just made Terrence Malick six hours of music and was like, "All right, I guess use it with whatever yeah, for whatever. whatever you want to do with it." I know, That's yeah. Great. And the music that he ends up using is is so iconic and so like the perfect kind of music for the kind of scene that it's in. That apparently it's the it's the filler music that people use when they're when they don't have their scores done yet and they're just like editing a movie. They use oh. that song that Hans Zimmer did from Thin Red Line as the song that just plays, so they so they know like okay, well we need music here so that we have a sense of how this movie's In gonna work. Interesting. All right, Hans Zimmer, you sold me. He did one of the James Bond themes with Billie Eilish, and which a friend of mine who is a really a touring musician whose name I won't share because you can't really trash Billie Eilish if you're working in the music industry. I don't think who says it's the worst Bond theme ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Through no fault of Hans Zimmer. I have some box office numbers to talk about but okay. Matt I'm going to let you know that these are merely domestic oh, box office oh, Matt, numbers Matt's going to be so pissed I'm a they world are, box office guy they are not worldwide and oh, I made that choice fucking on nationalists. Purpose, not because America I'm, first I see how it is <laughs> <laughs> but because I think this movie has a lot to say about America. and I Yeah, think this I, I wonder if this movie would have even been a big hit internationally. No, I don't think so. So in 91, I, I wanted to know, like, how different is Thelma and Louise from the other movies that are happening in its moment? And uh, <laughs> what is happening in 1991 is, like, we've got some really iconic women character-led movies that did that performed very well for their producers. Of the top 10 domestic box office grossing movies of 91, three are, uh, have, have women, women characters at, at the center of the story. And they are women characters who are like strong and brave and on some kind of mission to either escape or subvert or like put a stop to male violence. Number one, Terminator 2. That, you, when you say number one, that's the number one movie of the year? Is that what you number mean? Number one movie of the year. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah Terminator. Okay. Number four movie of the year, Silence of the Lambs. Mm, okay. Number seven movie of the year, Julia Roberts' is Sleeping with the Enemy. 
Does that count as a strong? Well, I, I don't remember it enough. I just remember it's very Hitchcocky. I mean, right? it's basically like the beta version of Gone Girl. Okay. Um, but there's like, yeah, but there's like classic gaslighting and and like psycho yeah. uh, torture, like psychological torture. Um, anyway, uh, I think something very different is happening with um, Sarah Connor and Clary Starling and Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy than is happening with Thelma and Louise down there at position number 25. I think Thelma and Louise. That was is, 25, huh? Yeah, 25. I would have guessed I would have guessed much higher because I definitely remember when it came out and it was it was like one of those movies everybody talked about for sure. It's, yeah, you just knew it. Like, it was a late yeah, late yeah. night jokes would make fun of it. Yeah. Other people yeah. would it's love it. It's a capital it was, D discourse movie of its time, right? Right. Um, but yeah, it's like there are a lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle type movies above it huh. in in mm-hmm. in box office gross in the year that it comes out. So first of all, like Tell me, do you agree with me? Like, is Thelma and Louise a a different kind of yeah. strong woman story than these others? And and if so, Absolutely. how? Like, why does it feel different from those others? Because let's be real, Sarah Connor and Clarice Starling are awesome characters who yeah, are carrying sure. like great yeah. movies, iconic movies, classics you can return to three decades later. But there's something different about Thelma and Louise. I think one of the things that's different is the most obvious one, that it's not one woman, it's two women, and they talk a lot, and they have great conversations. And you believe their friendship, too. And they do the buddy comedy banter, you know, when they rob the place and go with the car and they're laughing and talking. But then when they really talk about... You know, and they don't go deep into it. It's a smart script. Like, they don't have to have this huge unpacking of all the details of any tragedy that has befell them or what men have done to them. Because there's this really strong understanding. And But they, they talk about it just enough that you feel the connection. You know when she starts laughing, when she's thinking about... They're driving in the car, and then Gina Davis starts hysterically laughing... And you realize she's laughing at watching her attempted rapist be murdered by Susan Sarandon. And Susan Sarandon is kind of put off by this. And then all of a sudden, Gina Davis just goes like quiet. And it just felt like this scene in a good way, not a bad way, like that you can pull off in a play or in theater. And I was very struck by that scene. And it seemed just like a very interesting directed move or idea for a scene when someone's laughing and you don't know why and it's dark and it's 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 the opposite of... Uh, I think it ties into something else you're saying about their friendship. Yes, 100%. The biggest thing is that they are not alone. And we get to watch them transform together and alongside one another. But also, I think it's that that what makes that friendship in particular work so well is that we get to see them be angry with each other. And we get Mm. to see distance between them. And we get to see them struggle with who the other is and how she's responding to the situation at hand. And we get to see them, like, work through that. It feels like a really authentic friendship. One that you can, one that you can really believe and buy into as like the the central motivating uh, heartbeat of their lives, and and I, God, I just I fucking love that. I could I could Mm -hmm. not get enough of that. I could (laughs) not get enough of two uh, women who really genuinely love each other in spite of each other's faults, have no problem calling each other out for what are legitimate faults. Yeah. Um, and, and like working their way through and past that. It's like, Oh my God. And 
when shove it in my face. I love it so <laughs> fucking well, much. I was so, so surprisingly moved when at the end of the movie, I don't know what the line is, but when Susan Sarandon tells Gina Davis that she really loves her or she's one of her favorite yeah. friends, or I don't know what she says. And then Gina says, Davis, been, she said, you're a really good friend. And then Susan Sarandon says, you too. Yeah, and then Gina Davis is so moved that she said that and is so happy yeah. that she said that because yeah. Gina Davis knows she hates Susan Sarandon playing Louise, hates Gina Davis's husband, and, and she probably feels like she thinks she's an idiot for marrying him. And then Gina Davis loses the $6,000, you know, in the envelope. And so she probably, like anyone in a friendship, and also wonder Gina how... Davis is younger. Um, yeah. Yes. And and so we're, we're, we're kind of led to believe that she's like... Uh, more naive than the yeah. Susan Sarandon oh, character. by far, yeah. And she's just so, she just lights up when Susan Sarandon says that you're a good friend too. And I found that so touching and sweet because it just seemed like a real moment. So part of what you were saying about their friendship being believable is they do, they spend a lot of time, um, a lot of really well-made time from a movie-making standpoint and a script standpoint, um, allowing them to be friends before the movie really gets going or w by saying really gets going before we get into the plot. Mm -hmm. So like the way that like they are planning their trip and, and it involves Gina Davis having to call her at uh, uh, Susan Sarandon at the at the diner that she works at. And that means Susan Sarandon has to like go use the phone that everybody <laughs> uses, but they're used to getting calls from Gina Davis's character because that's her friend. So of course they call each other on the phone because yeah. that's how phones used to work. And she has to smoke a cigarette while she talks. <laughs> And there's just a lot of like a setup of just like you're yeah. you're you're dropped yeah, yeah. in the middle of their lives. You are not really introduced to the characters in that way that it's like, hi, I'm so and so, and this is my friend so and so. Yeah. It's like, no, this we're in the middle of a long friendship. Gene, you know, you mentioned about how like yeah. Susan Sarandon like probably hates uh, the husband. Yeah. I mean, she of does, course she yeah. does, but like that's not even an interesting topic to them. Like that's not even. It's yeah. just, yeah, what did you that. tell him? What did you tell him? How are you going to get away? And then when she tells her, oh, I didn't tell him, oh, ha, ha, that's great. Let's go. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's not even an interesting Well, she topic. even says to Brad Pitt at one time, she's like, oh, she hates my husband. And she's like, he's the worst. And like, it's just a yeah. like, thing it's between them. And they move interesting. on. It's yeah, it's fine. Like yeah. this is this is how life is. Some of your friends have really yeah. shitty husbands. No. Like that's a very normal thing, you know. I'm I, in that world. Yeah. I hope that's not. No, a, I, I was like, I hope not. I, really, I really, I really. I would add that I think there's no predation in Thelma and Louise in the way that there's predation in both silence. Of, well, in all three silence of the lamb sleeping with the enemy and T2, like no one is hunting Thelma and Louise down except these cops who are really not actually like very good at hunting. And, and of them, the one that we are asked to relate to the most is fucking adorable. Harvey Keitel's <laughs> he's role really, in this he's, movie he's, He is nails that role. That's a, that's a role that a lot of actors charming. could have screwed up. Harvey Keitel. It's wild how much empathy he, I mean... There's no, there's no reason that we should believe that he wants to help None. them. He's yeah. a, he's a cop he's a who just like, who doesn't cop. even know them. He's the you know? detective with a heart of gold. But he, yeah, yeah that's he pulls exactly it off. He's somehow. like, those girls somehow. deserve a second chance. Yeah. 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 Obviously men play a very strong role. They're mostly happening off screen. We do spend time with the men, which, which are really fun scenes and really funny scenes. Their, their interactions of all the cops and stuff is the way they interact with each other. They're all watching TV at that guy's house. And it's, those are, those are fun scenes, but, but like the women are not really dealing with the men much. Gina Davis deals with her husband for one scene 
And other than that, really short she phone calls. She deals with uh, Brad Pitt, if you know what she I mean. She does deal with Brad Pitt. And we've, yeah, I imagine that will come up at some point. She, she deals quite a bit with him for a couple hours. <laughs> but what I mean is that, like, so in these other ones, you know, the, the, the Silence of the Lambs is about the relationship between Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. T2, it's not really about the relationship between her and her son, um, Sarah Connor and her son, or, or them and the Terminator. But, I mean, they're like it's, a threesome, right? Like, that's, yeah. like, they're all together. Like, it's like, it's a, it's a team. Yeah, they're a family. And Science and Sleeping with the Enemy is, like, very much a movie about, you know, a husband and a wife and that that problem there and, you know, whatever. We've seen that kind of movie before. This This one... They the movie is mostly following the two women and they touch base with the men and we as viewers touch base with the men at times, but they're pretty much two completely different worlds. Um, it's like the orthodox synagogue of movies. We only mean? see the men on like one side oh. and then we switch <laughs> yeah, over yeah, to yeah, seeing yeah. the women yeah. and like they almost right. never except interact for Brad with Pitt. Except for Brad Pitt. I have a question for you guys. I am doing, uh, what is it called? Part of Me, Part of You by Glenn Fry, who famously is the Eagles. Him and Don Henley are probably the voices you most recognize um, from the Eagles. I mean, you hear it and you hear the little clicky, sweet rim shot of the drum and the delivery of his lines. And, you know, this is post-Eagle. It's him, so it sounds very much like the Eagles. It does, And yes. I was like, wait, this is, that sounds like a line from To Kill a Sunrise or something. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's just, like, so many, like, of the same, like, phrases and terms and it just sounds like a leftover eagle song honestly if you told me it was an eagle song i would have believed you sure yeah, why and, not? and yeah. you can really yeah. hear his like influence and he is the eagles and it has that chill bittersweet southwestern sound of the eagles <laughs> that they have. you're making it, has, it sound better than it is yeah you're really well, selling I mean, what is actually i was thinking about this eagle eagles hate is a really easy sport right everyone loves to hate on the eagles and but what about this song well yeah this song is just like another boring eagle song yeah. <laughs> but I was trying to think of before I get into the song more because I think the song also ended all Eagle solo careers. It's a theory I came up with watching it. Oh, so then we have to love this song. That song did the world a favor. We we grew up and the Eagles ruled the '70s and had all these huge hits and we all know Hotel California. We've heard it a million times. And then in the '80s, what four Eagles had successful hits and careers and they kept it going. And then by the '90s, it was over for them. I guess I'll talk about this now then. They had all these um, hit singles. You have Joe Walsh, and you have Don Henley, and you have um, Glenn Fry, and who's the other guy? Feldner? Other guys a lot like him. Uh, yeah, he uh, had a hit. And they all have solo hits. Yeah, it's like kind of like the Beatles where they all go on and they, almost all of them have um, solo hits. And then this song comes out and this song is a pre precursor to an album he's going to release. And he's going to release this album called Strange Weather 1992. Part of Me and Part of You was earlier released on the Thelma and Louise soundtrack. And it's kind of the theme song to the movie. It has a, a video for it yeah. with cuts yeah. of it. And it's a pretty unremarkable song, like I said. And it like peaks at number 55, really doesn't do anything. And then the album comes out. And no song reaches a top 40. It's it's a commercial failure. 
And I guess, hmm. you know, record company miscalculations, 1991, no one wants to listen to the Eagles anymore. You're not going to break top 40. Oh, they thought, oh, they missed it by like, yeah. by like two years. Right. They were like, maybe, fucking maybe, out, but out. it just was 1992. Uh-huh. Everyone was like enough already. And he never, it was his last full album of re- original material before he dies in uh, 2016 later on. And he never wrote new stuff ever since. And he, if he released the album, it would usually be lots of covers. Wow. So that's another victim yes. of Thelma and Louise. Another, another, We've got the, another the would-be victim. rapist. <laughs> and yeah. also Put them on the same level. That's really fair. <laughs> <laughs> they're, the Eagles, they're, they're going. They got solo careers. Don Henley's huge and winning Grammys. And they're trying to creep into the 90s, and they can't break into the 90s. And people are like, no more Eagles. We're done. And they said, you think you're fucking done? What if we reunited, got rid of all our solo projects, <laughs> And it's like Voltron Unite became the Eagles again in 1994 (laughs) and reminded every dad that they need the greatest hits album from the 70s. And then they just toured on their old stuff. And um, a lot of from there on forever. And their solo careers are pretty much. And a lot of people who called up to get those tickets because you had to use the phone to get tickets Mm -hmm. to a big concert like this were greeted by. Hi, hello, thank you for calling Ticketmaster, where American Express is the preferred method of payment. My name is Joshua. How may I help you today? I worked at Ticketmaster and I sold these damn Eagles tickets. It sucked, man. And you were selling the tickets to the... Joshua, is is there there a service industry job? This was the famous Hell Freezes Over tour because they said they'll never get back together until Hell Freezes Over. And uh, man, the lines were jammed. It was like one of those, like, we need everybody at work today. (laughs) The Eagles are back. And the tickets were... It was like the first concert where tickets were unbelievably expensive. Expensive. Yeah. I mean, this is... This is capitalism doing what capitalism does best. You actually don't have to synthesize new information into your middle-aged life. We will teleport you back to the moment where it all felt really good is something you'll pay a Ticketmaster upcharge for. To add to that narrative, you can rebuy all your albums on this new thing called the CD. Uh, Mid nineties, the Eagles inundation has begun and it's on the radio again. All our parents are listening to it and we're all listening to this very generic rock. And then the moment of freedom, I think when you, everyone's like, what if we just hated the Eagles? Cause we're just sick of them is in 1998 when Jeff Bridges as the big Lebowski gets kicked out of a cab for complaining about the music. And he says, I've had a really enough night, man. I fucking, and I fucking hate the Eagles. And it's a hilarious scene. And the cab driver's like, you talk about my music. And he pulls over and he's like, I just hate the fucking Eagles. And he drags him out of the car and throws him in the street. Jesus, man. Could you change the channel? Fuck you, man. If you like my fucking music, get your own fucking cab. I had a really rough. I'll up to the side and kick your ass out. Man, come on. I had a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. And at that moment, you know, I was like a senior in high school and I was like, yeah, I do kind of hate the Eagles. They're just so boring. Like maybe when I was younger as a kid, you just accepted it as classic rock. And then I feel like that put it in. And then for the next 20 years, everyone just had fun making fun of the Eagles after the Big Lebowski. Matt, I totally forgot about the Big Lebowski being like the... tolling the bell for the eagles but you i bet you are it's so funny correct you have like pinpoint you have sent like a laser sight to the one cultural moment when the whole goddamn thing began and we were all finally allowed to say as a collective p 
people. We hate them. Well, all right. <laughs> You're going really far with that. But they deserve to be made fun of. Oh, I hate them. Yeah. The Eagles' greatest hits is the number two best-selling record of all time. So, but that's why we needed Jeff Bridges as the Big Lebowski to just let us all accept this and be like, "Yeah, isn't that incredible?" This Glenn Fry song, the part of me, part of you. I, when I first heard it, I immediately wanted to get a karaoke track and force us all to like do karaoke to it because it is that. It's cheesy, such a karaoke. Song. It's such a cheesy karaoke song. It just yeah. sounds such such a dumb sing along. <laughs> it's so, yeah. So here's my question where you, you'll probably get upset. What is the difference between this song and almost every other song in the soundtrack? Because they all just sound like generic rock to me. Yeah, with that, maybe like a, a twang or a, a kick. But I feel like you can like it's good music for the movie because it sounds like what would be on the radio. Yes. If you're driving down to Mexico through the, the state, I think it's a fictional path they made up, but from Arkansas through Texas to Mexico or wherever they're going. Right. And it sounds perfect for what would be on the radio. But and I this movie was a great pick. But as a soundtrack pick, I was like, I don't I don't know what to do with this. I have, it's I have all an it's all eagles to me. <laughs> I, ha- <laughs> I have an answer to that. The first the first thing I would cite is is Little Honey by Kelly Willis. would say is one of the stunners on the soundtrack (laughs) (laughs) which i think is a song that has uh, a complexity to it that doesn't feel like it's fulfilling a formula it feels like um it feels like an an authentic piece of musicianship in a way that the glenn fry song is to to my ears at least um uh a formulaic sort of expression of um, of like best practices, if you will. <laughs> so, so I I think that like my answer to how are the other songs different from the Glenn Fry is that not all of them, but a handful of them. I, I would put the Marianne Faithful. That uh, one's interesting, but that one's an obviously strange and interesting song. I think that there's I think that there are a handful of them that are that are. Um, that are just genuinely less expected than the structure, the musical structure of the Glenn Fry song. You could play that song for somebody who'd never heard it, and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know this song. Um, and they would believe it. They would think that they did know it, even if they'd never but heard they it. But the like, they all sound yeah. like yeah. verse, Fry chorus, song. verse, yeah. same guitar, same setup, like two guitars, a drum, a bass, verse, chorus, verse. Find a hook, sing a song. Would you rather listen to Harry Connick Jr.? Kind of, yeah. Hook. 
But I like, I mean, okay. I, I want to well, just, we, on the record, I don't not agree. like, <laughs> I, there are like country songs that I do like and country artists that I do like, but it's Tell definitely not. And it's like all the old classics that are like obvious and easy to like, like Willie Nelson and all the outlaw country and Johnny Cash and like, uh-huh. and my parents so listen to a but ton, version one. ton of that. I, I don't know where it stands. And then there's this world of like eighties, nineties country to my ears that just literally sounds like the stuff you pass by on the radio when you're looking for a channel. And it all sounds the same to me in the, in the seventies, it sounds different. And before in the sixties and fifties and like, obviously Tammy Wynette and stuff like that. But this genre of music just sounds like it's all like, I don't know, just kind of this like recopy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy kind of thing. Not like a young, beautiful man from New Orleans covering the standards in a new way and making him his own, as Joshua would say. <laughs> I think that one of the things that, one of the reasons the music works really well, I, I mean, you kind of already said this in a way. I'm not saying it doesn't work for the movie. It works for that, but I don't know why I'd put the soundtrack on without the movie. Yeah, you know no, I, I, mean? I definitely wouldn't. But I'll give you an alternative version of this, is that the alternative version of this, where this movie, like, mines the, like, country hits like so you're kind of like there was like an oliver stone movie called u-turn that did this where it's like oh it's a movie in the south so we've got to like have the scene where the patsy klein song plays and then we got to have the scene where you know the johnny cash song plays and like i'm glad it didn't do that because that's not like that's not what people listen to all the time and i'm not saying people listen to this stuff all the time but i'm saying that this stuff kind of sounds like movie music like it just sounds like the stuff that like happens in a movie like the music that's like in that era like big guitars you know i mean this is a ridley scott movie but this movie looks a lot like a tony scott movie i'm a big tony scott fan i think tony scott ridley scott's brother made really yeah yeah we need more hollywood directors like tony scott guys who can handle a denzel washington action Mm. movie and it's gonna be good not gonna be like not art not like some, you know, trying to make some larger, you know, win Academy Awards and stuff. Yeah, just a solid, solid fulfilling, fulfilling yeah. fun action yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. And, and you're not feeling the hand of the industry yeah. constantly and I making feel every like decision. And like Tony yeah. Scott yeah, yeah. uses Hans Zimmer a lot too. And I think that there's a re- that there's a similarity to the kind of like uh, that sound that I think a lot of these musicians in this soundtrack have too. I mean, the blues, the blues song is a BB King song. It's like run of the mill, like standard sort of like, this is what the blues sounds like. This is what like guitar driven Rocky country sounds like forgotten, forgotten radio songs too, which are appropriate for this. What are the forgotten radio songs? I feel like there's like a lot of unmemorable. I got to look at the list though. But like, like this, this part of me, part of you song. That's a perfect. Yeah, I example. wouldn't even call it a forgotten radio song. I don't even think it counts as one of those. So you think it's not even important enough to be forgotten? I don't. I don't think part of me, part of you played on the well, radio. I meant, all right, forgotten, like just like kind of the unknown background music of radio that comes in and out that people don't notice. I guess in the movie, not in real life. In real life, part like, of me, part of you. In real life, these songs were. In real life, most of these songs were not on the radio. Yeah, and in part of me, part of you, barely was. I guess. I mean, if it tracked, if it made it to fifty, that means the weekend that it came out, Glenn Fry's family bought it. <laughs> yeah. But I agree that it's probably what Thelma and Louise would have going on, and they pull into. I don't a, think it's exactly what they would have on, but I do think that it's like it. It sounds like uh, uh, the world that they're in. Do you think it's a missed opportunity then, and someone should have no. went for what they would have really been listening to? No, because then it, that would have that would have drawn too much attention to to the uh, like uh, uh, the 
like current pop country artist or the current like run of the mill Rocky sort of like that would have been like like if a Garth know, Brooks song was in there they would have been flipping between Garth Brooks and Bon Jovi or some shit you know and it's like yeah I don't want to hear either of those in this movie <laughs> Okay, Matt, I know how you feel about country. And even though this is Shadow Soundtrack, which normally I try not to do unless, you know, it's really like a big, big deal song that we have to talk about. In this case, I have to go Shadow Soundtrack. I agree. Yeah. Because one of the songs on the Shadow Soundtrack is Tammy Wynette's I Don't Want to Play House. Today, I sat alone at the window. And I watched a little girl outside at play with the little boy next door. Like so. And before we talk about any of this, we're gonna a caveat that like I'm not gonna do the dissertation. It would take Tammy Wynette way too long. <laughs> but she's country yeah. I know and like. Oh, I know okay. country's oh. greatest hits. I know oh, the classics. I get it. Yeah, no, Tammy Wynette, she fits into the, the, yeah, she's safely in that sweet spot. Yeah. I think if it's like 60s yeah. and 70s, yeah. I know it. It's the 80s, 90s stuff that I'm like, yeah. I see. I see. So when country begins to have enough um, crossover appeal that Nashville is striving for more of that crossover appeal, and we're getting people like Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks. And yeah, that's Martin when I McBride, check out. That's, that's when you check out. But but when yeah. it's like when it's like the OGs, yeah. you're down. Oh yeah, totally. I see. So there I mean, are only yeah. so many steps away from Mother Maybell Carter that you're willing to go <laughs> before you're like, this comes too close to Toby Keith. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I hear Toby <laughs> Keith, and I'm like, yikes. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. I can't even look All at right. those people. <laughs> All right. Well, here's the deal. This song, I don't want to play house. Um, wins the wins the Grammy for uh, female country performance. It's Tammy Wynette's first number one solo, first time that she hits the top of the charts. Um, the the thing that is um, um, to me amazing about this song is not just that it's Tammy Wynette, but to me it's like a, a counterpoint to what most people would think of as her most memorable song, which is Stand mm. By Your Man. Like if you ask somebody who doesn't really know a lot about country, but knows a little bit, what's sure. the most yeah, famous yeah. Tammy yeah. Wynette song? They yeah. will definitively yeah. say, Also on the Blues Brothers soundtrack. And Stra- yeah. Strangely <laughs> enough. Yeah. True story. That's right. It is. Um, and actually, maybe that's part of why people associate, you know, know that one so much, because it, it's one of the one of these early ones that really does kind of have like sort of universal appeal. That is an anthem for doing exactly what Thelma and no. Louise mm-hmm. choose not to do. But I don't want to play house is to me like the other side of that coin. The, the speaker in the song is saying like, a daughter was out playing in the backyard with the neighbor boy and something didn't feel quite right to me. And so I went out to the backyard to see like what was going on and what I overheard was devastating to me. What I heard was my daughter saying, our daughter, actually she, she, she uses the 
the pronoun our. So she's speaking to the to the ex-husband. Our daughter saying she didn't want to play house because she's seen mommy and daddy do it and she knows it's not fun. Which is like <laughs> really yeah. kind of devastatingly sad. Um, it's such a poignant image. Um, classic country, like, you know, tearjerker kind of image. But in but in this song, uh, you know, she's the, the speaker is like, she's not standing by the man and she's also... Uh, she's sad that the daughter has been impacted and that the daughter has lost innocence. But at the end of the day, I think like the subtext of the song is that the daughter has, has like called it right. And it's not, a, <laughs> yeah. it, it's not, yeah, a, that's true. <laughs> it's not any fun yeah. and yeah. you don't have to play it and we're not going to play it, which is what makes it such a perfect uh, counterpoint um to Thelma and Louise, and in particular, mm-hmm. the scene where it takes place, which is the diner where they they kind of like gather their wits about them immediately after the shooting. And this is a song that's playing on the jukebox in the diner. And they don't they don't want to play house anymore. They don't know at that point what to do about it. But um, I, I love this song. I love yeah. this song so much, and it was really fun to see it in this movie. I'd totally forgotten that it. That it is fun. It's 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 really well done because I, I mentioned earlier about how the movie does a good job of not just like throwing out like the classic country hits or something like that, or or the modern the modern country. It's like it's not full of hits, but this scene. It's obviously it's kind of on the nose, right? It's like it's like the song. The song is about what, yeah. but you know you don't yeah. really register it that way. That's right. Yeah. But it's also believable that it's playing in that diner. And the the problem is when when they mm-hmm. they make these movies where like everywhere people in the South go, there's like a Tammy Wynette song playing or something like that. It's like that's just not how the world works. Like have you it's have you true. listened to country yeah. radio? That's not what they do. There yeah. is not a station that no. does that. But no. would you happen to be in a diner at some point that was playing a Tammy Wynette song? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, you know, if, if the whole soundtrack was doing this, it would be dangerous, I think, or maybe not realistic or whatever. But this one, this one's really nice. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you know anything about Tammy Wynette, it's like, oh, I'm glad she could come to this party. <laughs> yeah, totally. She belongs at this party. Yeah. These are her people. <laughs> and I tried. Oh, yes, I tried. But I can't I want to take a slight detour to other uh, intersections of music and this movie because there are a lot of them and they're really kind of wild. So, you guys ready for a quiz? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. I thought only Matt did quizzes. <laughs> no, I th- I've decided Matt's right about quizzes. Yep. Quizzes are fun. This was one of the fun things about being a teacher before I stopped being a teacher was writing <laughs> quizzes. Oh, I don't like them like that. <laughs> I just like when you guys uh, get a little competitive. <laughs> um, okay, so tonight's pop quiz is six musical degrees of Thelma and Louise. We are going, okay. to, we are going to take some like hop, skips, and jumps through and away and past the movie into all the ways that it, it intersects with music. Okay, ready? I got four mm-hmm, categories mm-hmm. for you. Okay. What do we win? Uh, Who's the better feminist? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I never win anything when I win these fucking quizzes. So what the fuck well, do you guys want to win? That's because you don't win them. Oh, right, right. 
<laughs> you you and Joshua's yeah. refusal to accept defeat. I don't know. I'll send you a, an action figure. Wasn't that the last time one of us uh, yes, sent a present I have it. to somebody? Oh, yeah. Here somewhere. Yes, I got that. I should I should update everybody that I, I, I did. I received just to I brag. Brag. I'll replace my, your Kevin Costner. I received my Kevin figure. Costner uh Prince of Thieves action figure in the mail. It's it's beautiful. It, it's he's, not he's all he buff. it's not all he got, Heather. He also got That's true. a Noted baby that. a baby sleeper thing. It is, and it's so cute. It's completely adorable. I think Matt hand sewed it. It looks it yeah. <laughs> I got I got connections in the textile design world. Yeah, I've heard uh, of a, and I was right, like, set him up with something pretty, baby. It's amazing. <laughs> Category one: female friendship. Boring. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Matt, you said that uh, you wanted to talk more about Callie Corey. Uh, the screenwriter of Thelma and Louise. This is not only her screenwriting debut, it's the first piece of writing she says she ever really attempted. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Jerk. She was a, she <laughs> you was know how many pieces of writing I've attempted? <laughs> she was a video producer in LA, like a music video producer. And then she's just like, fuck, up and wins the goddamn Oscar for the first wow. thing she ever wrote. Incredible. Um, originally she thought that the movie was going to be like something that she and her friends produced together. She was going to direct mm -hmm. it. Like it was going to be like a low budget indie thing, but a friend, one of her friends in this circle uh, works at Ridley Scott's company and he, whatever it makes its way to Ridley Scott and Ridley Scott's like, you know, the, our production company needs this and he ends up becoming the director. Such but, a smart move on his part. But yeah, man. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Callie's friendship, Callie Corey screenwriters friendship with which country music star inspired the story that she wrote she happened to have a, a friendship with with a true country music star um who was not yet a huge star uh was 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 working but was not yet the mega star that she would become All right and, I'm, I'm cataloging these clues uh and and yeah that that like girlhood beginning friendship they had known each other basically all their lives wow cool is is the inspiration for the movie? So, all right. Was that country music star friend A. Reba McIntyre? God, I love her so much. <laughs> You're editorializing these uh, multiple yes, choices. So. She's trying to fuck with us. Uh, B. Tanya Tucker. Okay. C. Pam Tillis. Or D. Kathy Matea. I don't know any of these people. You oh do know some of God, them. I know. Matt, I knew you wouldn't on. know some of them. Of I know. I know Reba McIntyre. <laughs> I'm going Tanya Tucker. Okay. Tanya Tucker. I'm going to go, just judging by facial expression, Pam Tillis. Of Heather's oh. facial expression while she was reading. Ding, 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 Matt! It is Pam Tillis. Oh, my God. Matt, who is Pam I Tillis? I was like, I don't know who any of these people are, but you, like, <laughs> shut off a smile, and I was like, hmm, why did she stop smiling real quick? And I was like, because it's the right one. <laughs> oh, you, you guys, it's cheating. Okay. <laughs> Matt, I'm guessing that you, if you're telling us you don't know who some of these people are, that... The one you don't know is Kathy Matea. The, I don't know the two, three, and four. Oh, Jesus. You don't know Tanya Tucker? You would like, know some of Tanya Tucker's songs. Tucker if you heard Carlson's she wife? No, she I was a know. big. She she had really big hits in the eighties. What do you think in the eighties? I wasn't listening to country music in the eighties. <laughs> but but like crossover hits. She had some crossover. Hits. I was listening to Billy Joel and like and Ghostbusters. You guys know this. <laughs> Kathy Matea is from my hometown. She now oh, she now hosts Mountain Stage which is one of the longest running and finest pieces of musical scholarship created by PBS um, and public radio, NPR. It, is, it has been recorded in my hometown for decades now. Um, wow. And, and is a live show every week. And 
like when REM came to Mountain Stage when I was in like sixth grade, my whole town was like utterly transformed by it. Every Gen X kid in town remembers the day that REM came to Mountain Stage. But Kathy Matea is now the host of it. It is fantastic <laughs> radio, and you should absolutely be listening to it. But anyway, yes, Pam Tillis. Okay, bonus bonus question. R.E.M. is okay. my, my kind of country, Georgia country music. <laughs> sure okay we'll get you there if that's if you can start with uh, if you can start there we, with athens we can we can carry you a little farther love those, they got that love those that college was, radio country voice i do this one goes out to the one i love is is like their pseudo country song right yeah oh, I can matt you that. probably yeah. uh yeah. you can you're like a wilco man probably well who i mean sure who's not I, a wilco I mean, man yeah okay, right. fair enough all yeah. right callie is married Bonus question. This is okay. to which legendary music producer? Oh no, music I, producer. And when I say and when I say legendary, I mean like top top five of all time. I'm ready. No, no multiple Qu- choices on this. Quincy, you got to call it out. I'm ready. I have no idea. Rick Rubin. No, T Bone oh. Burnett. Oh wow, let's be, oh, yeah, that brother art thou? Yeah, that makes and sense. Kelly Court yep. is also the showrunner and created this I do what know. TV series. I think I do know this. Country music. Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> Nashville. That's right. No, I knew I knew I knew this was Nashville. This is the only one so I knew. So Kelly Corey is a down ass girl. She's like a fucking country girl. And <laughs> and and she's she's a Lebanese American Kentuckian who found finds her way in LA and wow. still like has all these Tennessee and Kentucky roots and the bitch knows what she's talking about and she's connected to all the right people and I think that that's an important way to understand this movie. All right, category 2, inspiration for songwriting. There is a 90s icon who famously wrote a song about her own rape experience immediately after leaving the theater and seeing Thelma and Louise. How immediately? Like in the in the movie lobby? Like like uh, <laughs> reportedly hold herself up for days. Oh, wow. um, um, left the theater. Real sensitive, like, Joshua. Real sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and like blocked you know locked herself in a in a little space of her own for a couple of days and wrote a song. Was this songwriter a Fiona Apple, B, Liz Fair, C, our girl Jewel, who comes up periodically on the show, or D, Tori Amos? I'm going to let Joshua answer first because I'm pretty sure I know this one. I'm, I'm trying to do this based on years. I'm going to say Tori Amos. I think it is Tori Amos. I think I know this one. Yeah, it is Tori Amos. Oh, I finally got one right. <laughs> I finally got one right. I win. I win. Oh, you're right. It's good. Like Fiona Apple's probably too young. She would have been no, like I actually worked really hard to make sure that all yeah. of these people would be people who were recording at the same time because I don't never know how fucking nerdy you fuckers are going to get. Wait, you're telling shit. me Fiona Apple had albums out in 1991? Yes. Uh, are you sure? No, not only okay. I think right. no, I think, but like I, I looked think, it up. I know. Well, she, maybe, maybe I, I I wasn't aware of her until like 95. Yeah, maybe. definitely in high school okay. for me. Oh my god, you see what I mean? You're so fucking Hey man, if you want to write the quiz, don't get mad at the students who did their homework. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Tori Amos's song uh 
comes out on Little Earthquakes, which is a, obviously like yeah. the Tori yeah. Amos album. It's only a few months after uh, Thelma and Louise uh, is released. Wow! Yeah. And and it and it it's a song called "Me and a Gun." Um, it's totally a cappella. It is, in my opinion, unlistenable. But <laughs> but many many people uh, find it important and and moving. That album's great. You're crazy. <laughs> Throw no, another. I'm this, this song is unlistenable. I don't love Tori Amos, but there are definitely songs on Little Earthquakes you can listen to. Me and a Gun is not a. Yeah, sometimes you got to throw on some Mellencamp instead of Tori Amos when you want to. Thank you. Feel like a woman. (laughs) I'm finally getting somewhere with you. Um, (laughs) Oh my god, I have a list of takes that I'm going to read at your funeral, just to lighten, (laughs) just to lighten the mood. Wow. Like how you think you're going to outlive me? That's cute. Okay. (laughs) I I feel like you just threatened to murder me. While I've had the time of my life is playing. At the funeral? Yeah. Oh, yes, of course, because that's what we play at funerals here yeah. in the UK. All right, category three, Broadway. Matt, you should probably get this one. Which I wish country... I knew about Broadway. I feel like you do, kind of, though. Which Why do country... they got to call it Broadway? Why don't they call it Dudeway? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I did not expect Whoa. that going. But I mean, I have to say, good point, good point. <laughs> Which alt-country great is writing the book for a planned Thelma and Louise stage musical. Is it A, oh. my girl Nico Case, B, my girl Jillian Welch, C, my boy Steve Earle, my fucking boy Steve Earle. Oh my God. Or D, <laughs> my girl Brandy Carlisle. Oh, Brandy you're Carlyle. having too much fun. It's Brandy um, Carlisle. <laughs> it's Brandy Carlisle. It can't be Steve Earle because they wouldn't have a dude do it. Because it's not dude way. <laughs> <laughs> Neko case seems too alternative. I'm going with Brandy Carlisle. By... And you're both saying Brandy Carlisle. Yeah. Yes. You're both wrong. It's Nico Case. Oh, that seemed and like. Ugh, she's I know ostensibly that like largely done. It was stalled wow. by the pandemic, but you know, might happen, guys. I guess that makes sense. I thought she was like too cool for a Thelma and Louise. Maybe it'll be good. Sidebar, if uh, any like Scott Rudin types are listening, I would like a musical anytime soon that you can get Jillian Welch, Steve Earle, Brandy Carlisle, and Nico Case <laughs> to work on together. So this is, this. these answers are just like a secret super group you invented that you wish this is my Yeah, this is my highwayman. If I was... This is your uh, eagles. Yeah. yeah. Your <laughs> your God, eagles. it would be so fucking good. All right. Uh, I actually wasn't keeping score because... Oh, uh, we both got the last one wrong. I got the second one right. And Matt, you got the first I, one right? I guess the first one right. I got number one and two. So looks like Joshua loses again. <laughs> okay. I followed you down to hell with Brandy Carlisle. I should have known. If you were answering, I shouldn't have <laughs> agreed. Um, I can't wait to make you a playlist, Matt, with all of these people on it. And I think, I mean, I, I know you're going to love it. You're going to love it. There's no question. I hope it's better than the Thelma and Louise soundtrack. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Because woof. There are some fucking <laughs> iconic shots in this movie, right? Like, 
I mean, Thelma and Louise invented the selfie in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. Their little Polaroid <laughs> camera. Do you and like when it blows away at the end? I feel I like that's do. a little I really. Love it. I feel like I'm like we don't need to see the picture blow away. This isn't Forrest Gump in the film. <laughs> I like Gina Davis. I'm a George Clooney man, not a Brad Pitt man. But Brad Pitt's ass walking away from you. Under the rain machine it's a r- is. <laughs> he's so charming, though, in this. Oh, I don't dislike him. I'm just saying, if and I he's got the hair dryer I'm, and the hat and no shirt on, you're like, a, of not, course, it's a Kinsey scale. Like, there's, there's a Kinsey, <laughs> there's a there's a Kinsey scale that yeah, runs Ocean, from George. And- George yeah, Clooney to Brad Pitt, and I'm just more on the George Clooney yeah, side. Yeah, and Ocean's Eleven, I feel like tapped into that, and like even even played with that idea. Yeah, yes, totally. it did. It was like yeah. we're having a key party, here. and they're friends. Everybody so doesn't is keep coming apart. in <laughs> to this situation. I would I'd be Brad Pitt fling George Clooney long romantic relationship. That's where I'd be. It's pretty <laughs> remarkable to get to get called into a to get cast to be um, a total hunk dreamboat. Um, that's like your as first your, role, as, like your first big your, role. Yeah. That's, I mean, job. that's a, that's a, yeah. that's a tall order. That's a weird thing to get cast as. And for it to be anything more than just an absolute fluff, like is, is pretty rare. I mean, I, I don't think you'd find a lot of roles out there like this one where you, where it's like somebody is just put there to be TNA and, but is actually yeah. like, yeah, people talked about him. He got more movies out yeah. of this. Like it was like, m- you know, like the dreamboat who is yeah. actually suddenly like, oh, yeah, we want to see him in a bunch of other stuff immediately. And not yeah. just not just for TNA. We want to see him act in other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's because he's a man. Uh, yeah. You know, we live in a world of Gal, G- Gal Gadot exists. So I mean, <laughs> give me a break. But I mean, no, women have played the I, they definitely flip the gender thing and it's great. And they're going to objectify him and flip the grades and stuff. <sighs> Um, but you know, what's interesting about that one thing that Emily pointed out when we were looking at it, she was like, you know what this, what you draw a straight line to from this is, and we looked it up the 1995 diet Pepsi or diet Coke commercial where all the women stop at work to look at, um, the construction workers. And this was 91. She's like, was this around the same time? She's like, I remember my mom, every mom thought that was the funniest thing they ever saw. And she's like, I feel like that whole vibe. that's Shania like, Twain. You could come straight from like this kind of Thelma and Louise yeah, vibe, I'm, where you like I'm with Emily that like, like the 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 trick of Thelma and Louise starts out being a mere gender inversion, right? But it turns out through all of the work of everybody involved in this movie to be a lot more than that, um, which I think is why it it ages so well, and why thirty years later yeah. we can all have enjoyed watching the movie quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Emily's right that that probably like there were plenty of people who read this script and thought, Oh, cool. So we're going to do like, you know, a, a, a buddy vigilante, you know, fugitive movie. Um, yeah. but it's going to be, which has kind of been done in the seventies, but, but not this like this. Yeah. Another iconic, yeah, there's definitely been revenge. Movies another like iconic that. shot is that fucking FBI helicopter rising up from the depths of the canyon to (laughs) face down Thelma and Louise, like a fucking HR Geiger alien about to eat Sigourney Weaver's head. Like it's, it's so Ridley Scott. That could be like in an alien movie and a diehard movie. Like it's like, it's like he like lost track of what he was doing for a second. (laughs) It's so so fun though. (laughs) All of those scenes obviously pale. In comparison right. to the longevity yeah. and iconography of the Thunderbird sailing over the canyon, its hubcap trailing mm-hmm. behind, and like a, a freeze frame that uh, 
fades to white. If you have lived in the United States at any point since this movie came out, you've seen mm-hmm. a parody of this. Like, if you go to the IMDb page of like references, it's mm-hmm. hundreds long of all of the times <laughs> that someone has has made a Thelma and Louise reference. It's it's beautiful. Uh, we uh, Americans fucking love to see cars flying. We loved it in <laughs> Blues Brothers. Like we love it in Ferris Bueller. Like Fast and Furious franchise. Those cars are all literally in the, in the, in yeah, the they fly now. sky. Yeah. But why is this scene so, or and in particular this shot, or maybe even this still, so? What, what, why does it have such fucking legs? Well, how many movies could you name that have an ending like this? It wouldn't be very many. I mean... What do you mean by ending like this? The two, the two characters, the two people that you've been rooting for and hoping that they're going to escape and get to Mexico or whatever it is you're hoping for, Die drive off a cliff. Instead. Like, that's yeah. not how movies end. Certainly not yeah. big Hollywood movies featuring big stars. Yeah. I mean, the the composition of it is the composition, beautiful. It's a great yeah. shot. And the composition of it is pretty perfect because you can be like, do you go from the front? Do you yeah, shoot it right. from you yeah, know the front, yeah. the top? This and they just do it, and it's like arcing almost like a rainbow. And the cub cap is such a great touch, and it's there. And then, like Joshua says, it becomes static, and then you have to fill in the rest of the scene, the rest of the meaning, mm-hmm. all of that, and you have to participate in this beautifully composed shot mm-hmm. and. And you have to realize what they're telling you is going to happen, what has happened, what it all meant. And then you have to ask why they made the decision and and all that stuff. So I think because you participate in it. And also, it's just like classic. It is classic. But I guess that's my question is like, <laughs> why did it become a classic? Like what what what, the, made, well, the, the, what the, made it do that? Well, the, the political thing is inescapable i mean it was a big deal you know this was a this is a movie that fox news today would have called woke you know this was Mm -hmm. like you know this was a this was a movie that was that was oh people were pissed this was a movie that was yeah this was in arms this was confrontational you know this was like meant to ruffle feathers yeah luckily for the movie part of the reason it holds up is that it's better than that it's it's such a well-made movie the fact that it ruffled feathers just speaks to how stupid people were in the era it's not a movie that's like just just like yeah. Agripop or something like it's like or Agitpop. What's it called? Whatever. It's yeah. not just a movie that's just trying to poke you. It's a it's a it's a good movie. It's it's just an objectively good movie at any time. But this scene is meant to be talked about. It's divisive or it's freeing or it's exciting or it's alienating. Um, you know, shocking, certainly, because you don't, stars don't do this at the end. I, but I can't believe people got so mad at this because I thought they were very generous to, you have Harvey Keitel. So generous. Yeah, the detective, right, sure. you, have Brad, so you have Brad Pitt yeah. being like the sweetest, hunkiest, we love men it was, person. And then even Michael Madsen, he flips over furniture and gets pissed, but he's like, I still love you and want to be in a relationship and he, here's all the money and I'll help you and I'll, you know. And it seems like really nice to men when you're watching it now. It was a hit movie. I mean, it was a movie that like families went to and, yeah. uh, you know, men went to. I mean, it, it was a hit movie. It was yeah. yeah, but it's funny how people were so mad because they seem to give you like, obviously, asshole characters that exist that we all know fucking exist in the world. And then they do a, a really good job of all the men with talking parts trying to be fair about it. Yeah, it's not waiting to exhale. So it's just every like, man is yeah, a fucking yeah, asshole. Yeah, that's exactly. true. So I was like, what are they so pissed about? Well, this is a great cowboy. I mean, movie. welcome to my world, Matt. What are they so fucking pissed about? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I genuinely don't know. The secret to this movie is it slips very effortlessly between drama and comedy. Like when they know there's no turning back, it's the movie's smart enough to be like, okay, well let's let's let them enjoy being yes. outlawed. Yeah, it's you know fun. when they're at the yeah. no turning yeah. back phase, they're yeah. not like fuck this, fuck yeah, everything. We're out of here. They're like, well let's have fun with it. And when they put when you think they're going to get caught because the cops are getting closer and closer on their heels, and they put that yeah, cop in the trunk. <laughs> They played that scene for comedy, but it's a huge important scene in the in the plot because you're like, how are they going to get away? How are they going to get caught? This is how they're like tipped off. And then they're really in trouble because they got guns out and they're threatening cops and they're shooting up the radio. So it's like super fun, but they're totally making jokes when Susan Strandon's like, give me your ammo too. And she's like, ooh, and can I have those sunglasses? And they're like having no, a good time. No, she doesn't say. Well, yeah. she switches them, right? Yeah, she yeah. offers we to trade, yeah. trade sunglasses, sunglasses with her it's so hostage good. cop. And it's so funny. And I kept thinking, I was like, oh, if they did this for real, you'd probably get taken out of the movie because Gina Davis has a gun to a cop's head and like she's and they're going to put him in a trunk and the guy's crying. And I was like, this is the kind of scene that you would see serious and you'd be like, this is not believable or this seems. But the fact that they do it for laughs and then it really pays off when the trucker who's been sexually harassing them from the road and honking at them and they, you know, tell him to apologize and they're aiming guns at him and you get that really fun feeling of like someone gets their comeuppance and the hero finally tells the bad guy to fuck off. But then on cherry on the top, Ridley Scott, he blows up the fucking truck and it's like a lethal weapon explosion yeah. in it. Would you, and it's so Matt, fun. Can I, can I offer you a cherry on top of your cherry? Yes. Which is that Ridley Scott did not reveal to the cast that he was oh going my God. to blow oh it my up God. in an attempt to capture their <laughs> genuine surprise at the explosion. What? That's a huge oh my explosion. God, that's great. And what ends up <laughs> happening instead is that poor Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis are dumbstruck and are and are terrified. Yeah, I bet. And so he ended up having to <laughs> oh, no. anyway with it not being a surprise because oh. what what he captured was utterly oh, useless as they also that's a mistake sort of- in the movie. The guy they get to play the rootin' tootin' yeah. harassing, sexual harassing dude, it's just too ridiculous. He's it's ridiculous. like a Saturn Live character. He really is. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and they were like yeah. doing so good with the, I feel like they just told this guy, they're like, just go for it, buddy. Turn it he up to 11. He did not go be. to the sessions with the dialect. <laughs> no, he's like, if I, if you told me to be in Thelma and Louise and do like a mean Southern accent, I'd be doing what that guy was doing. Where are you going? Fresno. We've been seeing you all over the place. Why don't you take off those shades? I want to see your eyes. Yeah, I've been seeing you, too. Yeah, we think you have really bad manners. <laughs> yeah, where do you get off behaving like that with women you don't even know? Huh? <laughs> huh? How'd you feel if somebody did that to your mother? Or your sister? Or your wife? Huh? What are you talking about? You know good and damn well what I'm talking about. So there's a song on this soundtrack that is by Marianne Faithful called The Ballad of Lucy Jordan. And I didn't know this song. And I was listening to the soundtrack before I had seen the movie. If you've seen the movie, the song is 
one of the songs that is most featured in the movie. Like it's a really Mm -hmm. big, big scene. They're driving through the desert. It's beautiful. It's oh man, the way Ridley Scott shot this the the desert. uh, I guess they're in New Mexico, Arizona. Not sure. I mean, I think it was actually filmed in California and Utah, but the but the storytelling is right. Yeah, they would be going through New Mexico. It's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. All the the mesas and the desert, and 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 this is at night. And you know, we're pretty deep into the movie at this point. Definitely a sense that like, hmm, how is this going to end? Is 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 beginning to creep in. But but you kind of feel that also because you're starting to get a sense of them feeling a little satisfied about something. Like there's like a a calmness that kind of takes over the movie that's been very manic. It's at night. Gina Davis is asleep. Uh, for most of this scene or part of the scene, Susan Stranded is driving. There's a really nice blue hue over a lot of the scene. Um, and then the color grading yeah, on this scene is very, gorgeous. really gorgeous. And and you get a lot of repeated shots of just their close ups of their face. There's driving and there's scenery, but then there's just these shots of their face. And and so this song is a song that if you know this song, which apparently a lot of people do, I think when this came on and you were watching this movie, you would know how the movie was going to end. Because this song is about, uh, this song This song is a sad song. It and it has a sad, a, it, it has a sad, sad ending. And I think that if you knew this song, when this came on in the movie theater, you'd go, oh, okay, they're not getting to Mexico. Oh, wow. I did not know this song, and it is one of those that that uh, I'm I'm saying facetiously. It makes the whole podcast worthwhile because, of course, I'm joking. But I I am saying it as a joke because I love almost nothing more than when I discover that song that it's the only song I want to listen to for days, weeks, however long it, it it lasts. And that's this is pretty much the only song I've listened to for a week now. It, I've listened to it a hundred, a hundred times, 150 times. I don't know how many times I've listened to it. This song blew my mind. I l- absolutely lost it. I immediately, I get to work and I'm like, I'm, I've got to find out everything I can about this. So I've, I do all this research. I, Mary Ann Faithful is one of those names I kind of knew. I knew, you know, she had 60s hits. She has, you know, relationship with Mick Jagger. She's just, you know, if you read about rock and roll and you were a kid and you liked Rolling Stone, her name's always around. But I didn't know this stuff i didn't really know that much about her and so um i'm being knocked out and blown away by how beautiful this song is and so i'd start doing some research and i find out all this cool stuff like it was written by shell silverstein so crazy isn't it who also wrote a boy named sue so you know hey i knew none of this this is a so shell silverstein we're talking about the giving tree and uh you know i mostly known as a children's author but he did a lot of things and he was where the sidewalk where the sidewalk ends yeah yeah he was big in country in the country Sarah music Cynthia world. Sylvia Stout simply would not take garbage the garbage out. out. <laughs> <laughs> and then Marion Faithful basically in the 70s goes as far off the deep end as you can go. Like um, absolute homeless heroin addiction. Has a case of uh, laryngitis that destroys her singing voice. Old friends find her in the street and try to help her. People try to do things. It's just like this isn't this isn't happening. But she manages to get out of it enough that at the end of the decade she makes this album. So 
a masterpiece. It's incredible. It has just this really cool single like, kind of synth sound the whole time. It sounds like Brian Eno played the sounds. He didn't, but it sounds yeah. like Brian Eno yeah. did this. And it's just weird. And I'm like, how is Marianne Faithful, this old 60 person, putting out like this absolutely cool new wave song in like 1979 it's crazy it's 1979 it is it is and what was remarkable to me is once i looked it up to realize that like oh this is on like every top 500 album of all time list this is a like everybody knows about this and when i saw the cover of the album i was like oh yeah i do kind of recognize that album cover i feel like i've been looking at list of great albums and like looked past this one many times in my life I think that's really interesting when there's like one of these things that everybody else apparently already knew about. And we have those, I think we have those that we just don't care about. Like I know there's a lot of people that like whatever and I've kind of heard it. I just don't care about or that. Or you don't have time. You're like, I know that that's yeah. something that lots of people care about and I probably might even like yeah. it. But if the catalog is so big, yeah. I'm so behind the times at this point going back. We all forever. have a ton of those. It's like that the, the books that you bought at the bookstore you haven't read yet, you know? We have yeah. a ton of those, right? Yeah. yeah. But this yeah. is this yeah. is when you're shocked by something and like you want to tell people about it because you're like, I can't believe this. Do you know about this? And like, everybody's like, yeah, dude. Uh, duh. She knew she'd found forever as she rode along through Paris with a warm wind and a All right, guys. As usual, I think we know the answer to this. <sighs> Is this the perfect movie soundtrack? Does I think Matt might surprise us. Etc. Etc. Matt, you gonna answer? Oh, you want me to answer it? I don't um, know. I figured. I figured yeah. yours is probably you. Funny, gonna be funny. I kind of. I already gave my answer. Yeah, sure. In that, um, I was kind of wondering, like, what we could even explore in this soundtrack because it just seemed like there could be so many Thelma and Louise soundtracks. Like you can give me five soundtracks and tell me to guess which one is in the movie. <laughs> kind of like, like when Harry met Sally. <laughs> or you could like, no, not at, not at all. Not even close. This has changed Joshua's life with Harry Connick Jr. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's some nice little discoveries. The Marian Faithful thing is fun. And then there's a, you know, classic old country song on it, but you could have scored this movie with any of these songs. And lots of them and been fine and it wouldn't take away. The Hans Zimmer score obviously is the exception. So I think Thelma and Louise um, holds up fine without the soundtrack. So it's not the perfect movie soundtrack. And listening to it, I kind of wanted to drive off a cliff too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really like the soundtrack much either. Although I definitely like it a tad more than you do because I think that there, you know, there are some fine songs on it. As far as like the uh, the Martha uh, Reeves cover is nice. The the BB yeah. King song. I'm not a big blues guy, um, and I listened to way too much BB King when I was young. I kind of got over that. But you know, it's nice. It's it's a fine song. Um, yeah, and then of yeah, course a couple of nice spots. The on. ballad of Lucy Jordan by Marianne Faithful is life changing to me. I, it's, it's not. It's 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 as good as the song can be. And the scene in the movie is so freaking incredible. I do think you're giving a little short shrift by saying that like the 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 songs are completely replaceable. I don't think that song's replaceable. That song's I've, a cool move. I even I even think that song might have been at the center of the screenwriter making writing the movie. I think she was listening to it when she wrote it. I think it seems central and necessary to the movie however 
that doesn't make it the perfect movie soundtrack. It is not the perfect movie soundtrack. It's it's not a soundtrack I enjoyed listening to a whole lot, except for the fact that I found a song that I did enjoy listening to a whole lot, and I've listened to it a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that makes me so happy to hear. I, You're right, Joshua. That is what the fucking stupid podcast is for. <laughs> that is exactly what it's for. That's what it's for for you and for me and for Matt and for every listener, I hope. Yeah. Like, that every once <laughs> Find in a while. Find something, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it surfaces a gem that just makes you feel like there's something new out there to be had in things that you uh, thought you'd already covered in your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I'll be listening to this song for the rest of my life. There's no question about it. This, this is going to be on playlists that I listen to regularly for the rest of my life. I you, Quote me on it. Ask me in 20 years. It's it's entered the all-time list. There's no question. So since... Hashtag Marianne Faithful Faithful. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> and since we always talk about um, I had the time of my life at the British funerals. Yes. Do you want yes. Do you want this song played at your funeral? <laughs> well, I mean... We should nail this pretty, down just in case. It's a very sad song. So I think that would be a very tragic funeral song. Um, no, probably not. That's probably not what people want to feel. Um, I, ho- I hope people would, would want to remember me a little bit better than Lucy Jordan's fate. I'd be like, hey, he said he wanted to listen to it for the rest of his life, so <laughs> don't blame me, Joshua's family. So my next pick um, is just purely influenced by the fact that this is coming out right before Thanksgiving. And <gasps> oh, 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 my God. I, oh, I was thinking about Thanksgiving crossed. movies. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yes. And yes. you know what people only, forget yes. takes only a place during Thanksgiving? House uh, of Yes with Parker Posey. But that's oh. not my pick. That was a trick. <laughs> oh, that's interesting because there I are no real that. Thanksgiving movies. There, but there is there one couple. great. There's a couple. All right, we'll talk about that on the episode then, because there's okay. one great Thanksgiving movie that I'm really picking because I wasn't really thinking about the soundtrack. I'm just thinking about a Thanksgiving present for all of us, and that is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I am yeah. excited. Now, I did briefly look How into it. How much polka do we have to listen to? Well, it's actually, I looked into it because I was like. I have no idea what's on the soundtrack. Exactly. So there is a motif song, a recurring song. That happens throughout. Oh, and I remember that song. Yeah. You saying, I have no idea what's on the soundtrack. Heather, do you have any idea what's on the soundtrack? I mean, just John Candy's polka band. Oh, so, I just you... Googled it. I just Googled it. Oh so, my God. This is incredible. Don't so look at it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a new theory because I was like, I don't even know what's on the soundtrack and it might be, we'll test this hypothesis. The name might be the invisible soundtrack. When you love oh, a when you love a movie so much, and then someone says, "What's on the soundtrack?" and you're like, "I have no clue, but I can do half the lines to this movie yep. somehow." That's a great that's a great call. The Invisible Soundtrack. I've seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles so many times, and I I, I don't know what's on the soundtrack, but I just looked, and Heather's going to be so excited. Awesome. Oh, God damn. Anyway, so there's the angle, but we're really doing it because it's a fun movie to talk about around Thanksgiving, and who doesn't love Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? It's it's so good. Oh it's God. so good. How do I? Even... I'm excited to hear Heather. Heather's googling it right now. She's about to find out what the playlist is. Oh! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is this the teaser for the? So people are definitely yeah. have to listen now. I do. Should get excited. <laughs> <laughs> Get 
First you delay me, then you bump me. I can't wait to see what happens next. Oh. I'm going home for Thanksgiving. I can help get you home. Pizza and a uh, gasoline cart. Have mercy. I've been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. I can vouch for that. Thanks for listening. We got three episodes left for you in this, our inaugural season of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack. And we are looking forward to ending it strong. There are some things going on for us outside of the podcast, though. And while we're hoping to keep things running as smoothly as we like to think they have been, it's possible there might be a delay here or there. Let's hope not. But just in case, you have been warned. As always, you can find links in the show notes to playlist featuring songs from this and previous episodes, links to our Instagram and Twitter for as long as that's even a thing anymore. I guess we'll see. And we've begun to occasionally post a little bit on YouTube as well. And that's something we'll probably be fleshing out a little bit more in season two. For Matt and Heather, this is Joshua. Be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts from. And as always, we love to hear from you. You'll hear from us in two weeks with another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack.